Welcome to KCADV's Certification Series, Module 2, Part B, Adverse Child Experiences in Adult Survivors. We hope you listen to the materials or read the materials that have been sent to you, or you can check out certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Welcome to KCADV Certification Series, Module 2. I have Jen Johnson here with me today, and we had been talking a little bit about trauma, but we wanted to come back because we just really thought it was important that folks understood the impact that experiences in childhood can have on adult survivors of intimate partner violence. And so we just want to bring Jen back in to talk a little bit about ACE scores, what that resiliency, and how can those experiences at a younger age can kind of show up in later life. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the different ways that trauma affects people, but I think especially because there's sort of a buzzword around ACEs lately, it seemed like it might be a good idea to to dig back into that a little bit. So ACEs stand for Adverse Childhood Experiences. It's something that really probably in the last five to 10 years, we've started to, there's been a lot more research into that and growing understanding of the ways that childhood trauma impacts us. And so that includes a range of mental and physical health effects that can be long-term. So, so yeah, I just want to dig back into that a little more. I'm glad, you know, even if you're not a program that does a score, some do and some don't, I think, and it might depend on what your position is with a program. But one of the things that I often hear newer advocates, it's like, I don't want to ask questions if I'm not going to do something with it, or I'm not skilled to be in a place where I can deal with person's past childhood trauma or their their substance use or their mental health. And so why are you asking me to kind of dig in? And I think if we can begin to look at, it's hard to advocate and it's hard to support and it's hard to prepare for future plans, goal plans, health, safety, wellness, if we don't have the full picture. There's a respect, there's an importance of gathering people's histories. And it's not just being nosy. And it's not just, it's not, it has purpose behind it. And so if we can begin to be aware of those adverse childhood experiences, even again, if we're doing the test, we're just aware as advocates and knowing how that can play out, it can robustly change how we do future coping, goal plan, preparation, safety planning, all of those kind of pieces. Yeah. And I think one of the things that as we were talking earlier that really kind of jumped out to me, you know, a lot of times we'll interact with survivors and you may have one survivor that you feel like is just kind of a hot mess, right? You might interact with somebody that is all over the place and they're really emotional and they have a hard time with organizing things and they may seem to have a higher need. And then you may interact with another survivor who, you know, for all intents and purposes, seems to have it together. And, but I think it really, it prompted me to sort of bring this up again, because what is visible on the exterior doesn't always necessarily totally reflect what's going on inside. So there are some folks in part because of if they've had what sometimes gets called complex developmental trauma. So it's another kind of term that you might hear alongside ACEs. It's a fancy way of saying if during your very young developmental years, you've had a lot of traumatic experiences, may not have had protective and safe adults in your life. A lot of folks who appear to be very, very high achieving adults have actually had a lot of complex developmental trauma. So you may see somebody who who appears to be functioning very well, and that in itself can be a trauma response. 
So for example, there are some folks who it's not always a function of trauma, but it can be, you know, you may have one person in a family who is always the one that kind of takes on whatever the tasks are. They're the caretaker for other family members. They're all, you know, all of this stuff. So I think it's just important to recognize that even the survivors that we interact with who, who may appear to be doing okay, I think if we get comfortable with you know, exploring with them a little bit about how things are. And this, what the other thing I hope people hear is this is not about telling survivors that they're not fine if they are really fine, right? So sometimes you have survivors who really are in a much better place than they've been in a long time because they're in a safe space. But you may also have people who, as a way of not dealing with, not thinking about, not getting stuck in the trauma of what's been happening, they go to only dealing with very practical things. So you might have like a star safety planner. (laughs) They can go through all of this stuff with you in detail, but there might be a lot more tumultuous stuff happening for them than what meets the eye. So this is a little bit of the challenge that I have for folks that are kind of, you know, and again, even seasoned staff are kind of broaching this work or, or delving into this work is don't presume you know what's going on and don't fall into the trap. And I've seen many folks do this. I've certainly have done it myself, that you kind of just let go of the person who seems to be doing really well and getting it all together because you're trying to focus on maybe the other folks that are just struggling outwardly a little bit more. And so your attention tends to go there. And then all of a sudden, that person that seemed to have everything kind of going for him was working their goal plan, seemed to be fine, very self-sufficient. All those pieces kind of throws you for a loop because here it comes. And maybe it's because they're safe for once in their life and they're beginning to right. let their guard down. They're beginning to to build that trust, but it sometimes really can throw us. And so you often have a spectrum of how folks can experience trauma and how they, and how they, how that outward faces. And so we have a tendency sometimes to avoid the problem folks, right? I don't know what to do. I can't yeah. deal with them today. Like yeah. they're messy. Yeah. And then we tend to a- avoid the kind of good, quiet client because they're just, they you know, we say right. hello, but yeah. they seem all right. Yeah. And so how do we make sure that we're checking in? And if we really don't know, right? At first, we just don't know. Right. What's the advice to new advocates to to open up that conversation? Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, sometimes, and this is often not going to be something that you get into in your very, you know, first conversation, perhaps. This may be something that you are going to build a relationship with a survivor over time. And as you observe their own patterns, you know, I think it's fine to say, you know, you seem like you're doing really well. These, you know, to, and I think really even doing some of that strengths based stuff can be really important. And also alongside that to sort of take a moment and say, you know, is there anything that we haven't gotten to talk about that you would like some space to talk about? Or even to say out loud, you know, I know sometimes folks are so used to having to deal with chaos and and they've had to take care of things. But this is a space where if you want to talk about some stuff, we can. Or if there is any additional support that we can layer in, we can. And it's okay to not be okay if that's true for you. That's a scary thing, I think. I'll sometimes hear, you know, residents at shelter kind of go, I can't go there because I'm afraid the The floodgates are going to open, right? We've all heard that terminology. I'm afraid of letting that go. And I do think we need to trust that survivors know when they're they're feeling safe and they're ready to share. Yep. I think that goes back to a conversation we had in the in the previous podcast of re-traumatizing. You're not going to re-traumatize by asking the question, right. but respect the person, you know, to be able to share and give the 
permission and safe space for them to be able to do that. Is there some, if we're not doing an ACE assessment, but we're wanting to kind of dig in, is there certain questions we should be asking as we're gathering history, we're collecting history, and we are going beyond just what brought them in the door, the immediate intimate partner, where we want to have a more colorful experience as to what's going on. Is there certain questions that maybe we could ask that brings up some of those experiences? Yeah. I will say, so for us, and this is a little bit different because we, so we have the sexual violence resource center that I'm at. We've got therapists that are also in-house. So this is, it's a little bit different and a little tricky because we may route people directly into therapy, or in some cases, that's exactly what they have sought out our support for. But having said that, I do think some of this translates. So we'll ask some questions around something as simple as like, you know, so you've described some symptoms that you're having. How long would you say you've been feeling that way? Or how long do you think you've kind of been experiencing that? And sometimes you'll have folks who will say, I don't remember ever not feeling that way, right? Or you may have somebody else who says, well, really only for about the last year. That's when things got really bad. That's their normal, right? That's interesting. Yes. And so a lot of times, if you've got folks who are saying, you know, I don't remember ever not feeling anxious or on edge or uncertain or whatever, all of this stuff, then that might be a good indicator that person probably has some stuff from childhood they might also want to explore. I think the other thing, and Diane, I think you and I have talked about this too, is that we should always only really be asking questions if we are prepared to do something with the answer, (laughs) right? And so I'm not an advocate for, you know, coming up with a big long list of very detailed questions about ACEs if you're not necessarily going to do anything differently with that. But I do think it's a matter of creating space, for example, to also say, you know, a lot of times when people have grown up in unstable homes or if they experienced abuse as children, that also is a risk factor for domestic and sexual violence in the future, right? And so all of these different kinds of traumas. So just knowing that, it can help us better understand what brings people to where they are. And so, yeah, so I think a simple question about how long have you been struggling with the things that you feel like you're struggling with? And then honestly, I think sometimes just a a question about like, is there anything, you know, obviously a lot of our focus, for example, if I was saying this in shelter, I would say a lot of our focus in shelter is on the here and now and making sure that we're able to get you safe and make sure that we're able to get you into a place of self-sufficiency and meeting the goals that you identify for yourself. But in addition to that, we are also able to connect people to other service providers. And so one of the things that we often find survivors might need is connection to a therapist or connection to other groups or connection to other types of things. So can we explore some of this together? And so I think in order for those questions to be purposeful, it doesn't have to mean that you have like a resource in-house to meet the need, right? We ask lots of other questions for resources that we would direct people to externally, right? right? Like we'll connect people with food stamps. We'll connect people with housing assistance. We don't necessarily have that in-house, but we're connecting them to other resources. So I think starting to look at mental health as one more resource that we're connecting people to is super important. And I think then the other piece that I would kind of throw in, in terms of like, well, now what? If If I know that this person may have childhood trauma, what am I going to do differently with that? I think a lot of it, it's not even so much just what you're going to do differently. It's how you understand that person's experience, right? And so if I can understand that this person who seems to have it all together had to learn at age five to take care of her siblings or how to tiptoe around dad's outbursts, that informs how she so shows up with me. Yeah. And 
understanding that can be really important. It, absolutely. And isn't that critical when you are, again, doing kind of life plan, goal plan, whatever that is, if you can foresee yeah. to a degree along with them, obstacles that might arise, responses that might arise when things go awry, then you can, I, I don't know, then, then you can sort of plan for things. That Absolutely. was sort of a simple answer, but you yeah. can sort of plan for things. And if you don't know those things that might trigger or trip up somebody or hiccup somebody, if you don't know it, yeah. then you can't. But it, it's so empowering for a person to work with them and go, this is why this might happen. And when these things occur, this might be the response. That's perfectly normal. What do we do when that happens? Yeah. I think being able to predict to some extent. And it's and, and when I say predict, I don't mean like that you're necessarily going to know exactly what's going to happen for any given person, but to be able to give voice to that and to even almost preemptively normalize it for a survivor. You know, these are some of the things that survivors experience. And so, you know, if this is the first time that you felt like you're safe in a really long time and you start to feel stuff that you haven't felt for a really long time, that's normal. You know, if you're used to being a perfectionist and getting everything right, and you start to struggle with wondering how you got here and what you did wrong, that's normal, you know? And so just, I think, giving folks a little bit of information, because we are, and you and I have talked about this as well, we are, at the same time that we're advocates, we're also educators, both in the community, but also with the individual survivors that we're working with. A lot of times we can give them information that gives maybe puts words to an experience that they understand very well, but didn't think that anybody else did right. or they felt very alone in. And they may not, even though they may know exactly what's happened up to now or be experts in that, they may not know what's going to happen next. And so I think we can give people, you know, a sense of, of not being alone, a sense of not being weird or abnormal or broken. And that in and of itself helps, I think, to overcome the messages that the abuser often has sent, which is that you're abnormal, you're alone, you have no value, you know, like all of those really destructive messages yeah. that we can start to counteract. Yeah. I have found something kind of popped in my mind as you were talking, and it's, I think it definitely fits the the conversation, but I sometimes see survivors really get down on themselves when things go wrong. And there's a lot of self-blame. And I think it's always good to remind folks that Life in itself is messy. People in the best jobs, relationships, parent, whatever, housing, whatever, their lives get messy. We get flat tires. Yep. We lose jobs. Yep. We have health issues. We have breakups. We have those things. Yeah. It's how we build up the strength to be able to respond. I sometimes see folks feel that they're made it when those things don't happen to them anymore. Those things happen to everybody. Forever. Forever, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, I spill coffee on myself in the car, yeah. driving to work, and, you know. So those things happen all the time, but it's building up the capacity to be able to get through it and to not throw your whole day into, you know, a quagmire. And so, again, what are those things that can kind of trip you up knowing that you're bringing this whole you, childhood you, response you, I've got to be the fixer, I've got to do, I have to be all this, beginning to be aware of that might really prepare folks for when they get the apartment and life happens and they can just deflate, you know? Yeah. yeah. It makes me think too, because we've been talking a little bit about how for folks who tend to kind of over-function, it can be a real challenge. But it also makes me think, even as you were saying that, for those people who feel like they've been labeled as the mess, as the hot mess, right? That 
once they get to a place where it's possible, some stability might be possible. And so much of their ability to achieve that, it is very much connected to, can I believe that I am capable of it? If I've been told for how many years or decades in some cases that I'm just a hot mess, and maybe I've even functioned as a hot mess. But again, that is also connected often to that childhood stuff where like maybe that's the only way that you got your needs met as a kid is to be the one that needed taken care of, to be the one that couldn't do the things for yourself. So I don't know. I think just knowing that either way that people show up and anywhere in between, you know, you were speaking to that ability to kind of bounce back. And so much of that is just connected to this concept of resiliency. So we talk a lot about trauma. We talk a lot about how trauma can negatively affect us. But then the flip side of that is people are capable of overcoming immense, immense trauma, you know, overcoming things that when we look at it and we often say, oh, that's terrible when it's happening to somebody else, but we can manage to survive those things and come through it. And so resiliency is so much about, it's not about bad things not happening. It's about us building the skills and the tools and having adequate support to do that so that we then can bounce back in the future even better than we may have in the past. So the good news about trauma is that surviving it actually does in and of itself to some extent help us build our resiliency. Although I don't want to dive too deeply into this, I think if it's something that folks are interested in learning more about, that this concept of us having some control over. So, you know, we talked earlier about the fact that trauma changes our brains and it changes things about our chemical makeup. It changes all kinds of stuff. But there's also another concept called neuroplasticity that basically means, again, that we then can sort of rebuild those things. We can then consciously influence how we move forward in that way. So if you're interested, there's some really cool like YouTube videos and other little quick clips that if you want to feel hopeful about the the effects of trauma, I think neuroplasticity is a really, it's a very optimistic piece. And knowing that folks are, I'm sure any advocate to, you know, who has been in the work for more than five minutes can attest to how incredibly resilient survivors are, right? Absolutely. You know, I always like staff to sort of pause for a little bit, because if you remember what a person looked like maybe three weeks ago, two weeks ago when they walked into the building and then see where they are in a, you know, that duration of time, it's an immense difference. And we used to have the, the pleasure of Bob Walker, who was a professor up at the University of Kentucky, did a lot of work on brain and brain impact and elasticity and, and trauma impact. And so, yes, if you like to delve deep into the science of it, it really is a fascinating subject. But you know, a lot of things, looking at your programming to build those safe spaces, to build small successes, those small tasks, finding alternatives for things for people for when they're coping can really begin to readjust and make up maybe for some of the experience that people have had in their past and buffer up. I don't know if that's the right word, but their resiliency for future, because that's what we want, right? We want folks to be able to leave on this path. It's, they're not going to be 100% in three months, but right. To leave on this path that that really can be the goal. I can withstand healthily good coping mechanisms, what might be coming my way. And we don't really have time for this, but don't forget the littles, right? So we've got littles in our program. And so what are some things that we can do to mitigate those ACEs that might be coming their way? So absolutely. So those mentors, those coaching, those loving moments, making special moments for them in shelter that they can carry that with them. Yeah. It's critical for their well-being. 
And, and this might be a sort of, again, a hopeful note to end on, but there's a lot of evidence that even when we have adverse experiences as kiddos, when we have adults in our lives who can then sort of layer in support and make sure that we're getting our needs met, it's not about never having bad things happen. It's about learning how to cope with those things and learning that the world is not inherently a dangerous place necessarily, that there are ways that we can find our way through and that there are people who will help us do that. And so as advocates, I think we really absolutely can be the difference for for kiddos who are there in terms of how they see themselves moving forward. I think that's a perfect note to sort of end on. Jen, thank you so much for coming back and and having that conversation with us. And um, we really appreciate you all tuning in and uh, being part of KCADB certification series. It's really important work that we're doing. And I applaud all of you for for your commitment to this. So thanks. Thank you all. Yeah.